Thank you for tuning into the Freedom Church podcast, where you can catch our Sunday sermon on demand at any time. Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out on any of the content that's shared every week at our local church in Round Rock, Texas. Here's this week's sermon. Welcome to those here that are joining us for this uh, Memorial Day weekend. Welcome to those online. So glad you're here. Make sure to like uh, the comment and just comment that you're here with us. And we love you. And we're so thankful for starting this series today. We're starting a brand new series called Summer on the Mount. And what we're going to do, we're going to spend the entire summer camping out on the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm excited about this series. But before we get started, let me, let me ask you a question. Let me kind of set the stage for you. You know, we're a culture that is consumed with this idea of being happy, aren't we? We sing songs about being happy. Actually, one of the most popular songs of the last several years is simply called Happy by Pharrell. You guys heard that song? Yeah, that may be hit song. Hey, you know, even our pets can become celebrities just because they look happy. Take, for example, this dog named Tuna. Tuna was rescued after being dumped on the side of the road. He is half Chihuahua, half Dachshund, Winnie dog. That's why we had the hot dog eating contest. This makes him a Chiweenie. He, he has an overbite, and it makes it appear like he's constantly smiling. His owner made him an Instagram account, and he became an instant celebrity. Tuna has 1.9 million followers on Instagram, so take that, teenagers, way more than you. He's also known as, as another name by the name of Steven, but not Steven with an S, but Feven, like a PH, because his overbite makes it seem like he's talking with a lisp. So you can find Feven, and you can find funny memes with Feven all over the internet. Here's one of my favorites, uh, how I feel without makeup. I, li- I like this meme. But, but first, let me take a selfie. I like that one. <laughs> Fever is so awesome. You heard about all the gods doing at Freedom Church. She wanted to make a meme just for church. So here's this one. This next meme is welcome to Freedom Church. <laughs> but here's the reality. We're, we're all kind of consumed with this idea of being happy. In fact, we're in a culture that I would say is even in a search for happiness. Philosopher Eric Hoffer said this, the search for happiness is the chief source of unhappiness. It's been said there are two ways to be unhappy in life. The number one way to be unhappy is to not get what you want. The second way to be ha- get happy, to be unhappy is to not get what you want. Or, and uh, we're always looking for the happy. So we get what we want and you get married and you realize a wife requires a lot more work than you thought she would and you're not happy in a marriage, right? Or you get the child you always wanted. You always want a child. It's awesome. And then after having the child for a couple of years, you're like, man, I don't really like kids. How many guys are there right now? Don't raise your hands if your kids around you. Or or you get the dream job. And it's not as fulfilling as you thought. The house, the vacation, it didn't bring the return we thought we would get. We think if we had untold wealth or fame, then we would be happy. But actor and comedian Jim Carrey knows otherwise. He said this, I I hope everyone can get rich and famous and will have everything they ever dreamed of. Then they will know that that is not the answer. Wow. So how do we get happy? Happiness isn't as easy to find as we think. 
In the passage of scripture we're looking at this morning, Jesus tells us what it means to be happy. This morning we're starting a series on the most profound and insightful sermon ever preached by the greatest teacher who ever lived, Jesus Christ. It's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And we will spend uh, all summer, for the most part, till August, camping out and learning from this powerful sermon. The sermon is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, 6, and 7. And Jesus begins his sermon with giving us the key to happiness. Jesus tells us how to be blessed. In fact, he starts off his sermon by using the word blessed nine times in the first 11 verses. And the word blessed is the Greek word makarios. It means happy. It means, this is what it means. That word makarios can be, tra- can be translated this, to be satisfied to the core of your soul. To be blessed. Be a happy camper. How many of you want to have a, be a happy camper in life? We'll find out this morning what Jesus meant by that. So let's look at his words. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and he went and he sat down. And his disciples come to him, came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them. I want you to notice, the sermon was not directed to the multitudes. Who was it directed to? The disciples. The multitudes listened in, but the direction of this message was to the disciples. And one thing about the Sermon on the Mount that we got to understand, this is a hard sermon to understand unless you're a Christian and you have the Spirit of the the Holy Spirit inside of you. You cannot grasp it because the direction of this is to people who are following Jesus. Verse 3 says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The phrase he opened his mouth is a colloquialism in Greek. It's used to describe that the next thing that's coming out of his mouth is important. It's dignified. Jesus here, as he gives the Sermon on the Mount, he's given his kingdom manifesto, a picture of his kingdom. The problem with us is we don't really live in a kingdom. The language of kings and kingships is foreign to us. We live in a democracy with presidents and candidates. So to let me help you understand what Jesus means as he's talking about his kingdom, I want you to think about this phrase, the American dream when we think about the american dream what do we think about it's a vision of prosperity affluence independence success it gathers all these ideas into a paradigm and it gives us a kingdom the american dream to use a biblical word is a kingdom It's a vision of the way things ought to be. It's a picture of the happy life. We have people coming from all over the world to come to America to find a happy life. And if the American dream were at the core of the Beatitudes, it would be written like this. Blessed are the beautiful, for they shall be admired and liked on Instagram. Blessed are the wealthy, for they will have big houses and nice cars. Blessed are the famous, for they will have tons of followers on TikTok. But let's be honest, this kingdom philosophy isn't working very well, is it? The American dream seems so elusive. Today, we have 30 million Americans who are taking antidepressants, according to the New York Times. As America, we account for 5% of the global population, yet 50% of antidepressants are purchased by this nation. The American dream isn't producing the lasting happiness that our souls are longing for because there's something inside of this paradigm that wants happiness, that wants joy, that wants to have core, at the, that wants to have just dissatisfaction at the core of our being that it doesn't seem to be delivering. 
In the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus gives us an entirely different dream, a kingdom dream, an entirely different version of the happy life. He redefines our pursuits and values, and he invites us into a different type of life. And to preach this sermon, I just want to give you a little bit of background to set it up. First one says that Jesus went up to the mountain, and this is not accidental. This isn't just a random fact that Matthew puts in there. It's very intentional. Matthew writes his gospel. It's intended to a Jewish audience, so they pick this up immediately. In the Old Testament, when God brought the people of Israel out of Egyptian captivity, he brought them to the mountain called what? Sinai. And it was at Sinai that God appeared to Moses and he received God's law and he brought it down to God's people. It was, on Mount, it was at Mount Sinai where the Israelites entered into a covenant with God and they became his people. And I want you to see the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. One of my professors at Southwestern used to say this. In the Old Testament, the New Testament is contained. But in the New Testament, the Old Testament is explained. And we see this. In Matthew 5, we have Jesus as the true and better Moses. Moses led people from physical slavery into freedom. Jesus is leading people from spiritual slavery into freedom. Moses had 12 tribes that he was leading to build a promised land. Jesus had 12 disciples that he was leading to build the church. And Jesus goes up to a mountain to call a new people and announce a new kingdom to give a brand new law, which was just a fulfillment to the old law. Jesus is coming and saying, there's a new kingdom that's in town right now. It's all pointing to everything that the prophets and the law were telling us. And Jesus starts off his sermon not with commandments, but with beatitudes. Not with, not you shoulds, but blessed ours. Notice, these are called beatitudes, not the do attitudes. These are not attitudes that we do. It's who we are when the Holy Spirit produces new life within us. See, the Sermon of the Mount is not prescriptive, giving us things to do. It's descriptive, describing the new life and the character that the Holy Spirit brings in the life of a believer. And what I want you to do is I begin to unpack it. I want you to notice as we read the Beatitudes, you will see a progression. Each characteristic will lead to the next. And as we walk through the Beatitudes, this is what I want you to pray. Is the Holy Spirit producing this type of life in me? So let's pray before we get there. Lord, as we go to your word, the greatest sermon that's ever been preached, Lord, would you speak to us? Would you allow it to come alive? And with this type of work that you give us through the gospel, will we desire it? In the name of Jesus, amen. Verse three, this is what Jesus says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the first thing that we learn is a happy person realizes they need God. Jesus is not talking about not having money. But Jesus is saying, blessed are the spiritual bankrupt. Blessed are those who know they have nothing to offer God spiritually. They are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who realize they are beggars before an abundantly rich and a holy God. Jesus is addressing an audience, and I want to remind you that they thought that they were rich in spirit. They thought that they had the insight lane in knowing God. They were God's chosen people. And Jesus is saying, don't trust how many laws you can keep. Don't trust how you can quote Moses or the prophets. You need a Savior. You are sinful before a holy God. And unless you realize that, you can never be happy. 
C.S. Lewis said this, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. How many of you guys have ever been there? The closer you get to God, the more jacked up you realize you really are, right? That's what I know. I've been walking with God for 30 years now, and I'm like, Lord, I think I'm more worse than when I started. I thought I was better. But thank you for his grace. The great Charles Spurgeon said this, that the way to rise into God is to sink in your own self. If you want to be happy, you have to see yourself in need of a Savior. See, one of the first prayers that I've learned to pray every day, the first thing I pray is this, Jesus, I need you. I can't even be a Christian without your Holy Spirit. Can't even be a good husband. Like, man, I learned this from hanging out with Pastor Ron three or four years ago. I was spending some time with him, just praying up in a cabin. And every morning he woke up and the first thing that he said, I heard him pray it four or five times in the morning. I need you, Jesus. I need you, Jesus. Like, how desperately do you need him? How desperately do you say, like every morning since that time, for the last four years, I prayed three or four times, I need you. Because that shows our need for God. And the reality that we need God will cause us to mourn over our condition. Leading to the next thing that Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Only when you mourn, a happy person mourns over sin. When we see our sin for the offense it is before a holy God, we mourn. Some of you are like, Benito, I thought this was going to be a happy message. To realize that I'm poor to the point where I mourn doesn't sound like a recipe for happiness. It sounds like a contradic contradiction. I agree. But Jesus' kingdom is the opposite of the world. People who see the world from this viewpoint of how poor they are go through life grieving, longing for something better, wanting the world to be restored, wanting God's kingdom to be established on earth and forever. See, our world system is built on the avoidance of mourning, is it? But God is, but God is saying we got to look and just look at this idea of mourning because grief is something that we try to get over as fast as we can. Because we can start again on the pursuit of happiness. And we have so many things in our culture where we just try to numb the pain of the brokenness of our own life and the brokenness of the world. So we just say, oh, I'm just going to take a couple glasses to get the edge off. I'm just going to get my mind off of this. We go to materialism and work and sex and drugs and alcohol. And we try to avoid pain at all costs, don't we? Yet Jesus says, blessed are those instead of trying to cover up the brokenness. That they grieve over the brokenness. Why? Because there's comfort. Because one day Jesus is going to heal all that brokenness. And that one day today, right now, he wants to heal that brokenness. But he cannot heal that brokenness if we avoid the brokenness. Jesus makes a promise that in Revelation 19, everything that is wrong is going to be made right. And that comfort means very little to you if you're, grieved with, if you're not grieved with the way that things are right now. If you're not broken over the state of the world, there is no longing in, in you for it to be made right. See, one of the most profound verses in all the Bible is simply the shortest verse in John eleven thirty five. 35. It simply says, Jesus wept. But notice, why did Jesus weep? Because his friend Lazarus had died. 
He saw the pain that sin and death had brought to Mary and Martha. He saw community breaking. He created man without sin. Sin brought death on his creation. He saw the effects of sin and he was inside of it. And he didn't say it's not supposed to be this way. There's not supposed to be death. There's not supposed to be disease. And he said, wept, but he spoke into the brokenness. And he says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And he says, come forth. But the very fact that he wept gives us an idea of what it means to mourn. A missionary in Bible college taught me to pray a prayer that changed my life. He says, I challenge you to pray it this morning. And I did. And it's this, God break my heart with the things that break your heart. As Christians, we should mourn over the sin in our world. We should mourn over kids being raised without fathers. We should mourn over orphans who are being raised without parents. We should mourn with families who are being broken up by divorce. We should be mourn with people whose lives have been damaged with sin. We should mourn about the addiction and the brokenness that is coming into our culture. We should mourn over nations that need to be found. Jesus, this mourning is a good thing because this mourning causes us to look to a hope that's bigger than us, that cannot be found in this world. This mourning causes us to look to a Savior that's going to make everything right and can heal all things blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted jesus said what do you mourn over do you mourn that your bank account got smaller do you mourn that you didn't get the job you wanted or do you mourn for the things that matter what moves your heart jesus goes on to say in verse five told you this message is heavy isn't it Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. A lot of people hear the word meek, and they think it means gutless, spineless, a weenie for Jesus, doormats for God. But that's not what meek means. In the Greek, literally, this word is translated power that is harnessed. The way to explain it is this. Think of a horse that is extremely powerful. But that horse is put under a harness, and that power is, right in the next is set to the right direction. Here's the next thing that we learn. A happy person is submitted to God. When the Jews heard meek, they immediately thought of one person. You know what that was? Moses. Because over and over, the Bible called Moses meek. In fact, in all of Scripture, only Moses and Jesus were called meek. The only two that were called meek. And the Jews, here's what the Jews knew about Moses. They knew that, jo that Moses was no pansy. Moses was tough. He was like the William Wallace of the Old Testament. He would, he, man, he'd kick your butt. See, Josephus, the respected Jewish historian, records that before Moses was the leader of the Jews, he was the most powerful military leader in all of Egypt. And Josephus writes that Moses led the Egyptians to their biggest victory over the Ethiopians. And in that single victory, Moses single-handedly killed hundreds of soldiers by himself. This was Moses. Man, that's why, what does Moses do when he sees a, a, one of his Israelites being mistaken? He murders the man. Moses is powerful. Moses is strong. And when Moses leads God's people through the wilderness, there were times that he could have used his strength to hurt God's people and they would disobey, but he didn't. He was under control. He restrained himself. He had mercy on Israel like God has mercy on us. You see those types coming together? It's beautiful. And that's what Moses is. 
power under control. I can do what I want. I'm strong. I can take matters in my own hands, but I'm no longer living for myself. I'm allowing God's word to be my guideline, my guardrails. And you see the progression. We realize we're poor in the spirit. We mourn over our sin. We see his saving power. And this causes us to be submitted to God's plan. We're meek. We're strong, but we're under control of Jesus. Verse 6. And he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I love this one. For they will be, underline this word, satisfied. A happy person, this is what they do. They desire to be right with God. See? And when, they're, when, they, when they do, this will be satisfied on the very core of who they are. That's what's missing in our culture, satisfaction. You're only hungry until you eat. Then you're not hungry anymore, right? Hunger and thirst are longings that will not go away until they are satisfied. And this is what Jesus is telling us. Being a Christian starts with new longing and new desires. New passions. I remember when I first became a Christian, I've told you this story. My friends will tell me, oh, now that you're a Christian, Benito, yeah, you have a boring life. You, you can't drink. You can't smoke. You can't sleep around. You can't go partying with us. That sounds horrible. And I looked at them and says, it's not that I can't. I don't want to do those things anymore. I got a brand new desire. Those things aren't appealing to my life anymore. Being a Christian isn't those things that you can't do. It's about having new longings and new desires. And what happens is when you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit gives you a desire to be right with God and right standing with God, a desire for righteousness. And everything I do, Lord, I want to be right with you with my family. As I watch this movie, I want to be right with you. As I live my life, I want to be right with God. Does that describe who you are? John Piper was asked what he was most excited about for eternity. You know what John Piper said? He said this, sinlessness, I can almost taste it. I can relate. Because the older you get, the worse you realize you are. But isn't it going to be awesome when sin will be no more? See, at the cross, he took care of the penalty of sin. Right now, he's given us power over sin. But exaltation happens, the very presence of sin will be gone forever. And I look forward to that. And the proof that you're hungry and thirsting for God is righteousness. Let me ask you some questions. Do you have a desire to be like Jesus? Are you disgusted with your own sins and failures? Do you look back at your old life and say, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I acted like that. I can't believe I was that person. That is a sign that the Spirit of God is working inside of you. Non-Christians don't have that desire. Then Jesus says in verse 7, he says this, Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Next thing that we learn about a happy person is a happy person is merciful. When we realize how poor we are before God and how much we need him, you know what that produces inside of you? Mercy. Because you look at people and you don't look down on them. You're not, you say, man, if it wasn't for God, that would be me. Or that was me. This is what a Christian is. A Christian is one beggar telling another beggar where I found food. We're not better than anybody else. It's the mercy of God. And when that comes over your life, you're forgiven. And a forgiven person is a forgiving person. And this leads to happiness. Because if you aren't a forgiving person, you hold on to grudges. 
It's going to consume you and it's going to take away your happiness. Studies have showed conclusively over and over again that people who do not forgive are the most miserable people. They're stressed out. They lack sleep. They have high blood pressure. They have depression. They hold on to things. But let me tell you, when you realize that everything that Christ has done for you, you can't hold on to things anymore because if you would stand before God, you would be judged. And what somebody did to you was not greater than what Jesus did for you. That's the power of the gospel. Man, I told you, this is heavy, right? It's going to be a heavy summer. Getting the red words of Jesus. Number eight. Verse eight. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. A happy person is holy. I know we don't like to talk about holiness. Oh, this is that's old school, Benito. Yeah, that, that's not applicable. That's Old Testament stuff. But let me tell you, the one word... God is revealed over and over as one word. It's not love. It's not grace. But holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the Bible says, blessed are the pure in heart. See, the biblical definition of heart, let me unpack what this means. And the modern definition is totally different. In our culture, the heart describes emotion. We say things like, my mind tells me one thing, my heart says another, right? We describe an emotional person as someone who wears their heart on their sleeve. When we're sad, we say, oh, I'm heartbroken. We have songs that talk about the heart. Man, for those of you that are older, remember the Eagles? They sang about a heartache tonight, right? And those of you a little bit older than that, sang about, heard Billy Rice Cyrus talk about an achy, achy, breaky heart and a crazy daughter. He didn't talk, sing about that too much. But when the Bible speaks of the heart, it's not just emotion. It's mind and will all together. Proverbs 23, 7 says this, as the man thinks in his heart, so he is. So to be pure of heart, this is what it literally means. They say all that. It means a singleness of heart. Jesus saying, blessed is the person who is single-minded in their devotion to Jesus. That he is my ultimate goal. You're wholly devoted to him in every area of your life. Your time is devoted to Jesus. Your money is Jesus. Your passion is Jesus. Your sexuality is Jesus. Everything is devoted to him. Blessed is this person with a desire just to be devoted to God. A happy life comes when you are focusing your time, your talent, your treasure on Jesus. You see the progression? You start out poor in spirit. This leads you to mourn over your sin, asking God for forgiveness, which produces meekness because you see God's grace and love and you surrender your life to God's control. Then God gives you this new appetite for spiritual things. And when you do that, you become like God. You're merciful. And you have a heart that is devoted to the things of God. And he says, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Next thing about a happy person is a happy person is a peacemaker. But what does it mean to be a peacemaker? Jesus is not talking about world peace here. He's talking about peace with God. It's the gospel of peace. See, because through the gospel, we find peace with God. We were alienated. We were broken from God. We were in this discord in a relationship with God. But you and I can have peace with God because of Jesus. And when we have peace with God, it causes us to be a peacemaker. This means that we do everything we can to bring others to a relationship with Jesus so they can be at peace with God too. But let me tell you something about peacemakers. Peacemakers are first troublemakers before they're peacemakers. When you preach the gospel, people get mad at you before they get happy with you. 
Jesus said this in Matthew 10, verse 34. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. <laughs> Maybe that's a little bit different than some of the things we hear, right? I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father, daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. This happened in my family. When my grandma Frescas first came to Jesus, my family was divided because of Christ. For 400 years, we're a staunch Catholic. They would say, Hay dos cosas en esta familia que no cambia. Joel, translate that. You know, there's two things in this family that don't change. You don't change your religion, you don't get a divorce. And then all of a sudden, to change your religion and find Jesus, divide it, the family. I remember at our family reunions, they bring the Catholic priest to have our family reunions that would be there. And I was a studying pastor. My grandma forced me to get up there and say prayers. You're going to be a preacher. Get up there. Okay, grandma. <laughs> grandma was an awesome prayer warrior. I'm here because of her. Because when you become a Christian, everything's good. Not really. It gets bad sometimes first before it gets good. And if you come from a non-believing family where nobody's a Christian, you understand what this means. They, you all get along your own dysfunctional way. You're cussing, you're drinking at the family events. Everything's good. But then you become a Christian. And now you mess everything up. Because at the next family event, everybody's cussing and drinking and doing all that crazy stuff. And now you, Mr. Christian, show up. And you don't cuss and you don't drink and you don't laugh at the dirty jokes anymore. You're different and they know you're different. You're always talking about Jesus. When it's time to eat, you take time to pray, and they tease you, oh, no, Mr. Christian wants to pray. What happens? Your faith causes friction. Your family says, oh, we were better off before you became a Christian. Oh, you messed up the family. How many of you ever said somebody said that to you? This is how it was with my family as my grandma came to Christ. There was this friction. You could feel it at the family gatherings. But let me tell you what my grandma did. She fasted and she prayed and she modeled Jesus for decades. And today, that friction has turned to unity because all my aunts and all my uncles and all my cousins are followers of Jesus Christ because the gospel ultimately brings peace. But I'm just here to tell you, it's going to bring friction before it brings peace. There had to be trouble before there's peace. And that's what Jesus is saying. Embrace it. It's going to happen. And then verse 10. Oof, Jesus goes in deep. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Oh, don't you just like to get some, get, get that out of there. Like This is not one of those words that you want to circle, highlight, smiley face, right? Rip it out. You're persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is very contradictory. This is what Jesus says, that happy people are persecuted. If you're leaving out the gospel, let me tell you, you will be persecuted. One commentator I read said this, persecution is the inevitable clash between two irreconcilable value systems. The value system of the world and the values of the kingdom of heaven are going to come together, and it's not going to be fun sometimes. And let me say, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when and how much. And let me tell you, when you are truly following Jesus, sometimes you might get some little bit of, of persecution at the job, at the family, wherever you might be. You might not get that promotion. They might tease you a little bit. But let me just remind you, in many parts of the world, Christians are even killed for their faith. But we'd like to hear that. Just this week, I got an email from one of our missionaries. You know him. They've been here before. About a 14-year-old girl who was abducted and gang-raped by Muslim men. 
She was forced to recite the Quran and renounce Jesus. When she refused, they shaved her head and they beat her. This is a common occurrence in many parts of the world right now. People are persecuted because of their faith in Jesus. See, we love the promises of God, like Matthew 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Thank you, Jesus. God's promises are yes and amen. But how about 2 Timothy 3.12? That all who desire a godly life in Jesus will be persecuted. Ugh. That's what God calls us to sometimes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Let me just say, it doesn't say blessed are those who are persecuted for being dumb. Blessed are those who are persecuted for being self-righteous. Blessed are those who are persecuted for being rude or weird or disrespectful. There are many really weird so-called Christians out there. How many guys can say amen? They do really dumb things in the name of Jesus and they make all Christians look weird. Some of you guys know them. They don't come to Freedom Church, hopefully. Thank you, Jesus. Let me just say this. The gospel doesn't produce weird people. Some people are just weird before they get saved, and they're weird after they're saved. Let me say, Jesus came to save us from our sin, not our weirdness, right? But sometimes Christians don't use their wisdom in their conversations with all unbelievers. I've heard people say this. I just speak the truth. They get mad. The cards fall where they may. I just speak the truth. I don't care what people say. How many of you guys ever said somebody say this? That's dumb. The Bible says we're to speak the truth in what? Love. That truth without love turns people off. And with the gospel, the Puritans used to always say this, that the same sun that hardens the soil melts the wax. That's the reaction that you're going to get as we follow Jesus. Some people are going to hate us. Some people are going to be attracted to us. But that's what the gospel produces. This morning, as we close, I know I haven't given you the most appealing picture of being a Christian. Being poor, being sorrowful, being meek, being persecuted. It doesn't sound like fun. It doesn't sound like the life we want to live. But for others, it's very appealing. For those of you that have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you're like, man, that's the type of life that I want. I want to know God like that. I want my life to walk, to reflect that. See, the Sermon on the Mount not only comes from Jesus, but let me tell you what it does. It leads us to Jesus. The truth of the Beatitudes is this, that Jesus is all we need for everlasting joy. He's all we need for happiness. It's pointing us to the gospel. It's pointing us to him. Psalm 1611 says, In his presence there is fullness of joy. Just knowing him, there's not an experience. There's not a job. There's not an amount of money. There's not a house you can buy. There's not a car you can drive that will give you a joy that will last forever. In his presence alone there is fullness of joy. So you can be joyful when you have and when you don't have. And for some of us, we might have lost that joy. Happens. David said this, or return to me the joy of your salvation. 
Lord, when I knew you, when I walked with you, Lord, I've allowed bitterness. I've allowed offense. I've allowed sin. I've allowed things to get in my way, Lord. I'm not happy like I used to be with you. And guess what? You're just a prayer away. Man, the Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And the Bible says this, that God will forgive us and bring you to peace with him again. See, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us a life that is worth living for and a life that is worth dying for at the same time. Is your heart hungry for this type of faith? This is the gospel. Thanks again for listening to the Freedom Church Podcast. We hope that you were inspired and motivated to continue to grow in your faith. Don't forget to subscribe and share with others.